This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Monday, October 23rd. On the pod today, bombing escalates in Gaza as aid begins to slowly trickle in. We'll speak with the World Food Program about what help is needed. Plus, Hamas released two hostages today. We'll hear from a man whose two sisters, his brother-in-law, and three nieces disappeared during the October 7th attacks. He's been told they've been taken hostage. And Defense Minister Bill Blair joins us with the latest on Canada's response to the Israel-Hamas war. We're going to start with an update from Israel, where today two more hostages were released. The two are elderly Israeli women, Nurit Cooper and Yoheved Lifshitz. They were reportedly taken by Hamas during the devastating October 7th attack and have been held in Gaza. This footage from Reuters shows the two women getting into ambulances and receiving medical care. The International Committee of the Red Cross confirmed their staff facilitated their transport out of Gaza. The CBC's Margaret Evans is in Jerusalem. So, Margaret, what do we know about this release, how it happened? Well, it, it played out, David, very much like the previous hostage release uh, played out on Friday. The American mother and daughter who were released then. Uh, we had a statement on social media from Ham- a Hamas spokesman saying that two hostages had been released uh, on what he described as humanitarian grounds and poor health grounds. Um, there was a thank you this time not just to Qatar but also to Egypt for their role. And we've since had the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross again issue a very similar statement to the one they did on Friday saying that their role as a neutral observer allowed them to be the party that transferred the hostages from Hamas Hamas custody to the Israeli border and into the hands of the Israeli defense forces there. Um, Apparently with no conditions, although it should be noted that some colleagues, uh, journalists reporting from Gaza, did say that uh, there was a pause in the sound of drones overhead. Airstrikes seemed to stop for a while, and that also happened ahead of the Friday hostage release. So clearly, uh, you know, those in the know started to, to sort of prick up their ears, and then we've had this confirmation coming in. Earlier in the day, we were starting to hear about a potential deal that would have included 50 hostages, all foreign nationals. That was never confirmed, but we do know there's a lot of pressure from foreign governments uh, on the Israelis to allow time for negotiations to proceed. And of course, obviously, from from the families of of hostages still held, uh, more than 200 now, urging the government to make that the priority rather than necessarily a ground war. They're not all uniform in that belief, but certainly we've been hearing increasingly desperate pleas by the families of hostages making their way to uh, events around the world. To Some have gone to the, U- the UN. We've heard about a delegation going to Rome to try to, to raise awareness about the, about the hostages around the world. 
Right, and, and so the, the pressure there to maybe pause or delay the ground invasion, and despite the pauses uh, reportedly in the air barrage to facilitate the hostage release, the airstrikes have been intensifying throughout the weekend. So where does the Israeli military campaign against Hamas stand right now with all this pressure uh, to delay? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, if you talk to people inside Gaza, they will say that, and people who've, you know, been around long enough to have lived through previous uh, Hamas-Israel uh, wars, they say they've experienced nothing like this. Uh, there, in a 24-hour period, there were 320, 321 strikes by uh, Israeli, mostly Israeli warplanes. Um, the Hamas. Uh, run Ministry of Health in Gaza says 436 people were killed during that period. Uh, whether or not Israel is actually achieving its targets in, in, in terms of taking out the number of Hamas cells and operating groups that it says it is, is extremely hard uh, for us to verify. Um, it is such a scene of destruction and certainly we do see civilians being killed, many children at this point by this stage. I think more than 2,000 is the number again that um, the Gazan uh, Health Ministry is putting at. So it's taking a toll on the civilians for sure, but the Israelis say they're not pausing, they're going to go ahead, that the ground offensive is coming, and the Israeli defense minister had said it will be multi-pronged, so land, air, and sea. Um, but as you say, there is pressure because of the high number of civilian casualties amongst Palestinians living in Gaza, and of call, uh, of also for this, for this uh, time to see what could be done for the hostages, they, uh, you know, the pleas to make space for, 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 for things perhaps to step back a section. It's so heated right now. Margaret, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Margaret Evans in Jerusalem. Canada will send an additional $50 million in humanitarian aid to help Palestinians in Gaza and neighboring regions. Uh, and the focus of my participation was also about addressing the humanitarian issue in Gaza. Um, we welcome the fact that aid was able to enter Gaza. Of course, we need to see more. The announcement this weekend came as 20 flatbed trucks flying white flags entered Gaza via the southern border with Egypt on Saturday. In those trucks, a long-awaited delivery of humanitarian aid, food, water, and medical supplies. Not included, however, was fuel. And with more than 150 other trucks waiting at the border for another green light, humanitarian groups warned that the aid they received is only a small fraction of what is needed. Samer Abdeljaber oversees operations in Gaza with the World Food Program. He joins us now from Jerusalem. Samer, it's good to speak with you again. Thanks, David. Good to speak to you again. We're starting to see some aid get in, uh, but it's dozens of trucks uh, when hundreds uh, are needed. What are your people on the ground inside Gaza telling you about the situation right now? I think the situation is, is not improving, uh, David. Uh, like I was telling you earlier, it's, of course, a welcome first step that we managed to get some uh, convoys into uh, Gaza, uh, but it's just uh, like a drop in the ocean. I think there is more needed. And, of course, we're seeing people just exhausted from being displaced, uh, sharing thousands sharing one toilets in the shelters. So the situation is now really tough and it's getting into the mental health of people as well, not just the physical and uh, uh, diet and food and water issues. When we last spoke, uh, you had 
aid ready to go in at, at both ends of Gaza, at both of the entrances. Only, obviously, things are only moving in through the Egyptian side at Rafah. How much of your aid were, were you able to get into the, into the city? We were able to enter into only three trucks, uh, which is enough to feed 200,000 people for one day. Uh, we have basically uh, around 900 metric tons of food, which, is, which means 43 trucks uh, at, at the borders waiting to enter. Uh, but it's uh, it's a slow process, and that's why we're trying to advocate that we need it. It's it's a great initiative, first step that we're getting a couple of trucks in, but we need to go at scale at the moment. Um, if I want to give you just a comparison, what have entered now so far in any given day in the last three days is equivalent to three percent of what would have entered before the conflict. Three percent over a, a three-day period, or three uh, percent on a daily basis, Samer. On a daily basis. On a daily basis. So that just shows you the gap in need versus versus what's available. And a lot of the holdup has been Israel's security concerns and wanting inspections of trucks to make sure there's no weapons or military aid that Hamas could use, and then concern about it being diverted once it got inside. What's your understanding of how those uh, concerns are, are being dealt with? I think the Egyptians and the Israelis have agreed on a mechanism that allows the key commodities to go in, which is food, water, and and health uh, medicine. So uh, the first day it was a direct uh, convoy, but from the second day it went through the scanning process. And of course, there is capacities to increase, and instead of just going with 20 trucks, there is capacities to increase it to more, which allows more aid to get into Gaza. So we're working with all stakeholders and trying to address all the different challenges and obstacles to make sure that it's a smoother process moving forward. So there has been a lot of talk uh, from people on the ground there and, and from diplomats and the political leadership of various countries of some optimism for there to be a continuous flow of aid going in. What's your sense uh, uh, from your people there on how likely that is and how soon something like that could happen? I think we are all hoping that it will be uh, continuous and, 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 and steady. So because the needs are growing, um, just to give you another figure, 1.4 million people are displaced at the moment, David, and, and almost half a million of them are in uh, uh, shelters. Those shelters were originally built as schools. In a classroom, you have 70 people sleeping uh, uh, every day. So that tells you how much the needs are and how important to make sure that it's steady flow of uh, goods. And of course, if we maintain with the current uh, uh, scale of 20 trucks a day, that's not going to be enough at all. And it's going to create a backlog across the borders as well. When we spoke last week, you, you told us about how you're getting electronic vouchers uh, to people so they can buy food uh, from vendors who are part of World Food Program programs and also talked about various bakeries. Uh, the number had been dramatically reduced when we last spoke. What's your sense of that situation inside Gaza right now? Is, is there food to buy and are those bakeries able to bake anything at this point? So many of the bakeries have actually closed. The ones that we've contracted with have scaled down dramatically. Even that I think when we talked last time, it was around five that were still operational. Now it's even less because they're struggling. So we're trying to see how we support them on, on uh, basically any given day to make sure that their issues are, are addressed, whether it's by fuel or by wheat flour, to make sure that we are able to take that bread and source it to, to the shelters. Uh, but again, like I was telling you, like, I think when we talked last time, there were 260,000 
people in shelters. Now it's almost half a million. And the maximum we're able to source in terms of bread is around 220,000 um, with reduced ration. So that tells you how, how really difficult the situation is. Uh, we're trying now to explore uh, and work with partners for uh, healthy kitchens and hot meals in the shelters and, 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 and scale that up because we need to look at it it's, uh, on the long run and not just uh, on a day-by-day basis. One of the concerns people have is access to electricity. A lot of people rely on generators. A lot of hospitals rely on generators to run things like incubators and ventilators and sort of critical life-saving equipment. And, and even with the flow of this aid, Samer, no fuel is getting in. How, how critical is it that fuel be allowed in, or is that simply a non-starter because of the security concerns that Israel has about gasoline helping Hamas? Look, fuel is important for all the sectors. So definitely for the health sector, it is required for hospitals. But I can talk on, on something related to our mandate is that in WFP, bakeries need it. Uh, the mills needed to actually produce wheat flour. The, even the transportation that are happening at the borders for the truck, those trucks to do the transshipments and the back-to-back and move things to the warehouses, they need fuel. So, and unfortunately, the, the, the fuel situation is alarming, at least from a humanitarian perspective, because there's not enough that allows us to maintain that uh, logistical uh, operation that is required in, inside Gaza. So, and of course, if, if you ask the question about the electronic vouchers, the shops are running out of electricity, of course. Some of them have solar panels, and that's why we're able yet to uh, work with them. But uh, soon, I think uh, th- this is not something sustainable if they can't maintain it. And that's why they need to also go back into proper electricity to be able to sustain that systems. They're not able to restock and refill their the their, their shops sorry, simply because uh, uh, the infrastructure is, is not supporting it. Like I said, the roads are affected, but also fuel. So wholesalers are not able to replenish at the retailers level. So, Samer, I, I, just as a final point, I know, know the urgent focus is on getting aid into Gaza right now and coming up with, uh, you know, Egypt and Israel coming up with a, a, an acceptable inspections system that allows for that aid to flow in. But on that other concern about what happens to the aid once it gets inside Gaza and the possibility of things being diverted to Hamas and taken by Hamas and away from the citizens that you're sending the aid in for, how, how can that be monitored and policed when nobody can really go in there and, and the place is an active theater of war? Yeah, uh, look, I think the last word you said is really important. We're operating in, in a time of war and it's uh, really, really a complex conditions that we are operating in. And imagine doing that with, with, with no proper connectivity for internet or even mobile services. It's not functioning. So before the conflict, we had a 100% assurance on the delivery of our assistance. And that's why we're advocating. We need fuel. We need the communication systems to, to function so that we can actually design the right projects that allows us to uh, make sure that there is no diversion at all to uh, the wrong hands. At the moment, with the small scale of what we're providing, we're going uh, into the shelters. Those are UN-managed shelters, and, and th- therefore it gives us the assurance that there's no diversion outside the shelters. Uh, but going to communities, and that's why we're working now on a risk assessments. We're trying to contract the right partners so that we can, and monitors, of course, our own staff, to make sure that there is no issues related to diversion. That is a priority for us. Samer Abdul Jabber with the World Food Program. Thank you again for your time today, sir. Thank you very much, David. 
International efforts are underway to secure the release of hostages held by Hamas. It's believed more than 200 people were taken during its raid of Israel on October 7th. Cotter is acting as mediator in those talks. So far, four hostages have been released, including two elderly women today. But the rest remain held captive inside Gaza, including entire families. Moran Aloni is in Rehovot, Israel. His two sisters, his brother-in-law, and his three nieces disappeared during the October 7th attacks, and the Israel Defense Forces believe they were kidnapped by Hamas. Uh, Moran, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I, I wonder if we can start um, on October 7th. Your, your family were in near Oz, a, a kibbutz near Gaza. What can you tell me about what happened that day? Um, yeah, my my little sister Sharon lives in the kibbutz along with her husband David and their two twin daughters. And my older sister Danielle went there to do Shabbat uh, to do the weekend there, along with uh, her daughter Amelia. Around 8 a.m., um, we woke up here in Yavne and Rehovot Yavne, where my parents live, um, to miss that alarm. And uh, we immediately uh, texted them because if we have missiles here, then they definitely have them uh, as well. And so uh, we texted them. My sister immediately said, uh, we're in the safe room. Uh, they told us that there are terrorists in the kibbutz and uh, we don't know anything else. After half an hour, um, we tried to gain some more information. She still said she doesn't know anything. So they're still in the safe room. Around 9 uh, a.m., she uh, texted us that they can hear the terrorists in their neighbor house. I'm not sure what they heard, but if they said so, then uh, I'm sure it wasn't just uh, talking. After 30 minutes more, um, they texted us that uh, they can hear the terrorists in their house. Um, they don't know if they're going to make it, then they love us. Uh, we're we're trying this entire time to contact police, the army, everyone we know that can maybe help uh, the situation. We we still wasn't sure what's going on, but you know stuff were starting to appear in in, in the media. And after a uh, an hour that we didn't hear anything, um, my sister sent a uh, chilling voice message saying that um, the terrorists are burning the house. Uh, Smoke is getting under the safe room door. They don't know if they're going to make it. They love us. At 11.20, 20 minutes after this message, uh, she wrote two messages. Help, we're dying. And that was... Uh, oh, go, go, I was going to say, that's the last you've, you've heard from them, was help, we're dying? Yeah. These were the last uh, two messages. In the next couple of days, uh, we kind of constructed our own puzzle of, of things that happened there. In one of the video clips, we saw David, um, uh, along with maybe my sister or one of the daughters, we're not sure, being led on a wagon of some sort uh, into Gaza. We thought we also saw uh, Amelia and maybe my older sister, Danielle, but we're not sure. It's, uh, maybe it's wishful thinking, I don't know. A day after that, we read a story by one of the survivors that uh, met David Charon and, uh, and, and one of the twins during her kidnap-escape, um, where she probably asked David and Charon, where is the other twin? 
And David said, he said, I know that I held both of them in my hands when I ran, uh, when, when they took us from the Mamad. Um, but on, on, the, on, on that truck, there was only one twin. So um, I, don't, I don't know what happened during these moments exactly. Right. And four days later, we, uh, for uh, very difficult days, uh, we, we got a word from uh, an Israeli officer an IDF officer saying that the entire six were identified as kidnapped. Um, we have no idea if they are together. We have no idea what what's their condition. But um, according to my understanding, true for Friday the 13th, um, they were all alive and in the Hamas position, uh, uh, possession. Okay, um, there's a lot there. I just want to make sure I, I completely un- understand some things because it's a lot of details and, and uh, I, I want to be clear. Uh, so you say you've seen videos. These would be the cell phone videos we've seen, the scattered bits of video fragments we've seen for so many yeah. people being taken. And you think you've seen your family members there, but it, it's not It's not absolutely proof that it is them you just believe it looks like them it's a resemblance is, am i understanding you correctly i know i know we saw david that was 100 percent david uh and he held something in his lap but we're we were, we're not sure what and who right um not sure who to be more exact um and and i think uh from the back we think we identified uh my older sister danielle and emilia but again you know, you, 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 when you know someone, you know all the little nuances, and we think that we recognized, you know, by the hair and by the way that they were positioned. But, but you know, true for that day, we didn't really knew. Um, it was became clearer uh, on Friday when when they said that the entire six are uh, right are, so, are considered as kidnapped. So you're sure you've seen David, and he's married to your sister yeah. Sharon. And they have twin daughters, Emma and Yuli, who are three. And you may have seen Danielle and her daughter, Amelia, who is five. And, and this other person you spoke with, uh, uh, who says that the twins may have been separated, they don't know where, is this someone who was also taken on October 7th, but escaped, or someone who saw yeah. them? Just could you give me a bit more detail on that, please, Moran? Sure. Uh, her name is uh, Neomit. She also lives in uh, Kibbutz near Oz, and... Uh, in her interview, I noticed that she said that uh, she, she she mentioned a young couple, uh, parents to three years old twins. So immediately uh, I made the connection and uh, and got her phone number and called her. And she was in the hospital when when, when we when we talked. Uh, she was also under the same attack. Uh, she's uh, near Oz member as well. And uh, she said that they pulled her. She's a 63 year old woman. They pulled her from her safe room, uh, made her run about 100, 150 meters to a truck. Uh, when she got into the truck, she saw already there Sharon, David, and one of the twins. Um, she also mentioned that uh, the, the probably IDF was were trying to kill the terrorists on the truck. I'm not sure if they were dead or they were or, or they ran away, but they got a chance to. To, to make a run for it. David said, let's run to the trees. Um, it's an open field, mm-hmm. where, what, what she mentioned there, which makes sense because that's just outside their house. And, uh, and when she understood the, 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 the distance that she needed to run, she just, uh, uh, just 
fell on the floor and, and hope that, you know, playing dead, hope that they will not um, verify that she's dead. And, uh, and I understand that she also heard the babies, there were another family on that truck. Uh, they, she didn't see Daniel and, and Emilia there. She knew everyone on the truck. And she said that they tried to hide somewhere, I'm not sure where. Um, the babies were crying, and so another group of terrorists went by and, uh, and picked them up. So, so since all of this, the, the Israel military has told you that they believe your family has been taken and are being held in, in Gaza. I, I can hear the weight of this in your voice when, when you're talking to me. I, I can only imagine what you've been through. What, what, what do you want people to know uh, about your sisters, uh, David, your, your nieces? You know, I'm doing, I'm doing these interviews, uh, not my first interview, obviously, and, and I'm trying to, to share the story and make people understand what we're going through here. But I actually want to, to explain two things. One, this the Hamas group, uh, there is a conception that they are freedom fighters. This is not freedom. Um, these are fighters against civilians. This was not, has not been heard in, in, in history, uh, the things that they've done and, and the fact that they, they currently holding babies, 10 month old babies, uh, in, in, in their position. Another, the other message that I want to try and, and give here is this is not a military versus, uh, military. This is humanity versus evil. And when you think about my sisters and my three years old and five years old nephews, uh, also think about your kid. Think about how you would react as a parent, as a mother, as a father, when someone tries to hurt your kids, when someone tries to get in your house, when someone kill your family in your house, your protected place. This is what happened here. Mm -hmm. And this, I'm not sure if anyone, if everyone understands it. These are pure civilians. It was not army people. It's not a base of any, of any sort. It's a kibbutz. It's a very beautiful and green place. Uh, and, and that's what we're dealing with. That's what I'm trying no, I, I, I understand. And, and, and the Israeli military and the government today uh, shared videos and images with foreign journalists that, that captured from body cameras and cell phones, sort of showing them um, sort of what happened that day in, in horrific uh, detail. And, and I know you don't need to be reminded of that, but I also know you're hoping that you can get your family back and they can be released. I, I don't know what is happening in terms of negotiations, Miranda, to get them back, but there have been suggestions that uh, the U.S. is trying to get your government, um, the, the, the Israeli Defense Forces, to delay uh, a ground invasion to, to maybe allow for negotiations. We did see two people released uh, before the weekend. There's also been calls maybe for a ceasefire, if that might enable um, some hostages to get out. I, I just wonder, what do you think about those options that have been put on the table by people? I think that the fact that they are not, they have not already released all children and women, says Atila, says, says a lot. I think that there shouldn't be any negotiation on children, on elderly, and on women. And the fact that we are actually discussing, the fact that they are doing it one by one, 
what, are they trying to to uh, to look humane? Hmm. We've seen what they did. This is this is just, just not the way. First of all, bring everyone back, and then let's talk about anything else. We are allowing, I understand that Israel uh, allowing humanitarian aid to Hamas, but Hamas does not allow the uh, Red Cross to get into these hostages. Why is no one speaking of that? You know, there are so many questions and, and so many one-sided views of, of the situation. So I understand your question, but it's, uh, I think it goes much deeper than that. No, I understood. I, I just wanted to hear your perspective on it, right? Because it's one thing for, for diplomats and aid groups and politicians to talk about it, but you're obviously very personally affected by this. And, and I guess I just, uh, as a final point, uh, Marana, how are your parents doing through all of this? How are you doing uh, through all of this? This must be agony. It is. Um, it's, um, <clears throat> it's living by the moment. We don't know what message we're going to get next. Um, we're trying to hold uh, each other. We have many friends and, 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 and a big family that, that, uh, that supports us during this. Um, you know, on, 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 on Friday when they came and said that they kidnapped, I was thinking a couple of days later on the surreal situation where someone comes to your house and say that six members of your family are known as kidnapped, and you feel relief. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's where we are now. Yeah, um, that, 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 that's, a grim, that's a grim calculus to have to make, but uh, I, I understand what you're saying there. Um, Moran Aloni, I, I truly hope you, you see your family uh, again soon, safe and sound, and I want to thank you so much uh, for sharing your time with us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, David. The Middle East is balancing on a razor's edge tonight. This is footage captured this weekend of Israel's border with Lebanon, where the Israel Defense Forces and Hezbollah continued to exchange fire. Many fear that Israel's war with Hamas could widen into a much larger regional conflict, one that sees Hezbollah, a formidable militant group in southern Lebanon, enter the conflict in a more pronounced way. The Canadian government is issuing a clear warning. My message to Canadians in Lebanon is, first, you need to come home. This is time to leave. Minister Jolie acknowledges the Canadian government is working on emergency evacuation plans. And for more on this story, I'm joined now by the Minister of National Defence, Bill Blair. He's in the foyer of the House of Commons. Minister Blair, it's good to speak with you again. Thank you, David. Well, what more can you tell me about the Canadian government's preparations for a potential mass evacuation of Canadian citizens in Lebanon? Yeah, we, we, we've, well, we've looked very carefully at what happened in 2006 when we had to do a similar repatriation of Canadians. Uh, we've, we've already deployed... Um, a very significant number from, to, of Canadian Armed Forces members, both into Lebanon and to neighboring Cyprus. Uh, we've been working closely with Global Affairs and the Immigration uh, ref Refugee uh, Ministry. Um, we've, we've got assets in the region. There's, they're doing a lot of planning and preparation. Uh, at the current time, of course, there are, as Minister Jolie uh, indicated, there, there are 
uh, commercial flights available, and we're right. encouraging Canadians to take advantage of those uh, pre-existing commercial flights. However, should the situation deteriorate, we've got a responsibility to be ready, and the Canadian Armed Forces has been very, very proactive in, in going into the region and doing the work that will be necessary should it, that, that repatriation be required. Right, so you've had success getting people out of Israel uh, over the last week and, week and a bit, uh, but the numbers are much larger in Lebanon, as I understand it, Minister. Like, I think I saw 16,000, give or take, have registered uh, with Global Affairs Canada, but the estimates are believed to be much larger than that. I mean, I mean how many people are you talking about, Canadians who live in Lebanon, that you might have to help get, get to safety? Well, I, I can't tell you, David. There's a very significant number of Canadian passport holders, Canadian citizens, um, who are currently either visiting or resident in, in Lebanon. Um, the numbers are, could well, well exceed uh, the 20,000. It's one of the reasons we are encouraging and have been encouraging Canadian citizens there to take this opportunity using commercial flights to leave Lebanon and, and, to, and to return to Canada. For those who are una- unable to, we want to make sure that um, in, in, in the last conflict, in our experience, for example, the Beirut airport quickly become, became unavailable to us. And so we're looking at all the different options available, alternative airfields, even some marine uh, options are being are being actively considered. We just want to make sure, again, out of an abundance of caution, uh, we think it's prudent to, to do those preparations now. Um, and you know, and God willing, if, there, if the conflict does not spread into northern Israel um, and southern Lebanon, that that would be the best outcome. But should that happen? Uh, we want to make sure that we are there and prepared to help Canadians who may need our help. The, the marine options, I think I read in the Globe and Mail on Saturday that you're looking at cruise ships. I, is that a, an accurate uh, option that we're, has been put on the table? Yeah, we're looking at a number of different marine options. That could be a ferry ship, it could be a cruise. There are a number of options. We're, we're just trying to see what's available to us. I will tell you there are a number of other countries also looking in that region. So we're working very collaboratively with some of our international partners, but, but we have deployed a significant number of Canadian Armed Forces members who have a great deal of expertise in logistics planning for this type of an endeavor. Uh, they have been actively involved, of course, in the repatriation of Canadians from Israel. Um, they'll take some of those skills and they're doing the work that is necessary now. Um, while we're still in a relatively safe and peacetime um, environment to do that work, in, at least in Lebanon and Cyprus, and to make sure that we're ready if we are required. Uh, obviously, there is no advance warning of what happened in Israel on the morning of October 7th. Uh, there is uh, considerable runway before the potential escalation of things in Lebanon and ample time for people to get out. Given the warnings that have been issued uh, from Minister Jolie and others, and, and given the, the scale of, of this uh, evacuation, should it come to that? Uh, I, I mean, who pays for all of that? And, and, and do you have the capacity to do that as, as people have been warned that well, it is time to get out? We, we know, we, we've looked at, at what kind of logistics would be required in order to uh, facilitate that, t- that scale of an evacuation. It, it could take place over, over a number of weeks. And, and yes, there'll be expenses um, involved. And that's one of the reasons we are encouraging people um, to, to take advantage of, of commercial flights. Our intention would be to get those Canadian citizens to a place of safety, very much as we did with, with Israel, where we were able to repatriate those Canadians who wished to leave Israel. We took them to Athens, where they could then catch commercial flights onward home. Um, and, and that enabled us to run for, for, for a considerable period of time two flights a day. Now, those flights ended today. I'm going in, 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 into the Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. Um, we were able to repatriate about 1,900 Canadians from that situation. The Canadian Armed Forces did an extraordinary job, in my opinion, in, in, in ramping up and, and causing that to happen Wednesday after the beginning of, of the conflict on, on the Saturday. 
Um, but at the same time, the, the numbers have, have continued to drop. The demand for that, we're prepared, by the way, to ramp up if it's, if it's again required. But a lot of those resources and lessons learned will be applied should the situation spread to other regions, particularly in, in, in northern Israel and, and, and into Lebanon. So just a final point uh, on this topic, because I want to move on to, to another one in a second. The fact that you're in this level of advanced planning, what does that say about your risk assessment of the likelihood of Hamas entering this conflict in well, a more meaningful way. Well, I, I think oh, sorry, Hezbollah, not Hamas. Well, I, I, you know, we're, we're watching what we with some very concerning escalation, and, and I, sh- I saw the film you showed earlier, because there has been an exchange of, of munitions across that border in both directions, and some some uh, towns and villages that have been evacuated very close to the border. You know, we are concerned, and at the same time, we remain hopeful that there's there is a very significant diplomatic effort going on involving a number of, of players in the region in order to avoid the, the spread of hostilities um, into 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 that uh, Israel-Lebanese border. So we remain hopeful about those peace efforts, and at the same time, it would be. I think it it is absolutely incumbent upon us to make sure that we're ready. Should Canadian citizens in Lebanon need Canada's help, we'll be there for them. And and that's why we're getting ready. And I'd I'd be quite pleased if if all of that became um, unnecessary because uh, that, that, that conflict did not spread. But if it does spread, we want to make sure that we're ready to respond and to help the Canadians who will need our help. Okay, I want to ask you about the intelligence assessment that uh, you've done on, on the explosion at the Gaza hospital, because we've got a statement from you late on Saturday night saying that the Canadian Forces Intelligence Command concluded this was not Israel. Did you base that conclusion entirely on intelligence from the United States, from Israel? What went into that decision? Yeah, th- thanks. It's an important question. I asked the Canadian Armed Forces, I thought it was important for Canadians that they have an independent objective analysis done by a trusted Canadian authority, and I think the Canadian Armed Forces was that trusted authority. So I asked them to do a thorough analysis. They looked at, at, at the blast pattern from, and we had, we had a lot of like, open source video imaging of, of the blast pattern um, at, in the hospital and some of the adjacent buildings. They were also able to look at, 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 at data show, showing the trajectory of munitions in that time and place. Um, and as well, they also had access to the number of classified um, intelligence uh, resources um, that they were also able to consider. Based on the totality of that analysis, they came to a conclusion with a high degree of confidence that that explosion did not result uh, from a missile from Israel. And, that, and they also determined a far more likely scenario was that the, the missile had originated in Gaza. Now, now, certainly, I think it's, it's, it's also evident that their analysis is entirely corroborated and consistent with what, what the United States, with France, and other allies have concluded. But this was the result of a, an independent, objective Canadian analysis of all the data that was available to them. And we looked at every source, including a lot of open source that you've been reporting on today. Mm-hmm. Right. And the United Kingdom, uh, Rishi Sunak, the, the British Prime Minister, told MPs today that he, he came to a, a similar conclusion. But, you know, Minister, the initial reaction when, when a lot of people, including the media, were, were getting the story wrong, uh, you know, attributing it uh, to Israel for doing this, or what appears to be wrong based on the intelligence that, that Western allies have seen, uh, the Prime Minister responded in a way and various members of government responded in a way that a lot of people have taken as a condemnation and as a criticism of Israel. There's still tweets up from Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie saying bombing a hospital is an unthinkable act. There's no doubt that doing so is absolutely illegal. What do you say to people like B'nai B'rith who are on the show on Friday saying that 
your government has left the impression that Israel did this. Yeah, and I would want to assure all of all of our our, our friends in the in the Jewish community that we are not we're, we're not attributing in any way this to Israel. And the information and the data, the analysis that has now been done, I think establishes with a high degree of confidence, rather conclusively, that Israel was not responsible for this. And at the same time, David, I, th- I think it's important to acknowledge. I think we, we, all Canadians are concerned about the innocent loss of life in both Israel and in Gaza. And, and we are concerned about the safety of, of the Jewish population and the Palestinian population. And the concern that, that was being expressed on, on the, the initial night of reporting, I think, reflected you know, the, the concern for innocent civilians that, that were caught in, in, in the situation. The information, there was a great deal of misinformation, as you said. That's one of the reasons I felt it was very important to provide Canadians with an independent and objective analysis of what had actually taken place. On Saturday, I briefed the Prime Minister and I said, here's the result of the analysis. This is the evidence that we've got. And a decision was made, then we better share it with Canadians so that Canadians will know the truth. And, and that was important. And, and fr- frankly, it doesn't in any way diminish our, our collective concern about the loss of innocent c- civilian lives on both sides of the border. Right. But, but will, will the government take a different approach, I guess, in, in responding to incidents like this? I mean, I have no idea what is going to happen next in this war. You and I know that a ground invasion of Gaza, should it come to pass, is going to lead to some very awful moments uh, for the people engaged in that fighting and trapped uh, in that area. Uh, there, there will be things that come out of there. I mean, will the government take its time, or, or how will you change your public response to things? Well, well, well David, first of all, Israel was the victim of a very, very serious terrorism, terrorist attack from Hamas, and, and in which many of their citizens were, were brutalized and murdered. And, and we believe, and we've said unequivocally, that Israel has the right to defend itself from, from such terrorist aggression. And at the same time, I think all of us recognize that in any hostility, our concern now is also for the safety of innocent civilians. We believe that Israel has the right to defend itself, and at the same time, we are very concerned about the humanitarian impact. It's one of the reasons Canada has made significant new investments in, in, into Gaza to provide humanitarian aid. We've worked very hard to repatriate Canadians out of harm's way in those circumstances, but we also respect in, that, that Israel has a right to defend, himself, defend itself against that, that terrorism that, that invaded their country. Minister of National Defense Bill Blair, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks very much, David. The anger and rage over the Israel-Hamas war was on full display in the Ontario legislature today. MPPs at Queen's Park voted to censure MPP Sarah Jama over her refusal to remove comments criticizing Israel posted on her social media on October 10th. Jama, who represents the riding of Hamilton Centre, was also kicked out of the Ontario NDP caucus. Emma, we want to hear your side. Please stop and talk. You're blocking my physical way. You are blocking my physical way. MPP Jama has, you know, chosen not to work with us as a team, and so we've had to to uh, remove her from the caucus. You cannot continue to move forward when one person just continues to act unilaterally and not in good faith. This war has also prompted disagreement in the federal Liberal caucus. On Friday, more than 30 MPs, including 23 Liberals, signed an open letter to the Prime Minister that reads, in part, we demand that Canada join the growing international call for an immediate ceasefire. Justin Trudeau, to the side! Justin Trudeau, to the side! Justin Trudeau, to the side! 
And cities across the country saw protests by Palestinian and Israeli supporters. Calgary police made three arrests at a protest on Sunday. Charges ranged from breach of peace to one arrest for assault with a weapon. It's a lot. We've got the power panel here to discuss it. Lisa Raitt is a former conservative cabinet minister, now vice chair of global investment banking at CIBC Capital Markets. Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. And here with me in Ottawa, Vandana Cotter is a political consultant and former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, while Rob Russo is a former CBC parliamentary bureau chief, now writing these days for The Economist. Uh, hello, gang. Thanks for coming. Uh, Brad, Brad, let's start with you. Uh, Sarah Jama is, is a, was, until today, a new Democrat MPP. Now she's a censored censured independent MPP. What do you make of what's happened at Queen's Park? Yeah, and, and, and those two things that happened today are, are distinct um, actions. Uh, let's take the first one. Uh, her removal from the New Democratic Party's caucus. Uh, I support 110% Marit style and the caucus's uh, move uh, to eject uh, MPP JAMA uh, from caucus. Uh, and a lot of people on social media will say, "Well, it's because of of her stance on uh, on on the on the uh, on the war in uh, in the Middle East." Let's 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 make a few things clear here. One, as a member of a caucus, and as and as a member of a caucus as important as the official opposition in uh, Canada's largest provincial legislature, you are not your own person. You cannot do as you see fit. You cannot make uh, uh, agreements with your caucus, your fellow caucus members and right. your leader, and then go back on them. You, you are, if, if she wants to be the leader of a caucus, then she should run for a leader of a caucus, and then she'd get to set the tone and the policies of that caucus. But MPP Gemma is not. She is a member of that caucus from Hamilton Centre and could not bring herself to fulfill the obligations that she herself agreed to and made to her leader and her caucus, and you cannot tolerate that. That is not... Uh, that, that does not fit in with our uh, parliamentary system, right. and therefore Stiles did the right thing, uh, and caucus stood up with Stiles and ejected her from that. And she, uh, she's been acting like a, uh, an independent MPP, and today she is uh, an independent MPP, and Stiles and the caucus did the right thing. Okay, but, but Lisa, the, the legislature then, uh, the Conservatives, used their majority to vote to censure her, which means she has effectively been silenced over this and will not be recognized by the Speaker until she retracts, apologizes, and deletes her comments on social media. Is that the right move, silencing an MPP like this? Well, it's, it's one of those things where you, we believe in the freedom of speech, certainly, but uh, it also has repercussions in terms of your workplace. And in this case, the workplace is the legislature and the majority is held by the conservatives and they did what they did. And that's something that you have to abide by. What the government has to think about is that, are they on the right side of this? Was this the right thing to do? Was it too heavy handed? And they obviously have come to the conclusion that it's the right thing for them to do and, and they went ahead and they carried it out. But I agree with Brad, these are two different things. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give a separation between what the NDP did and what was done in the legislature today. Um, but this is a very emotional topic and there are some very strong feelings around it. And as you can see, you said at the top, David, this is a whole bunch of emotion and um, a lot it's very scary. It's, it's a very scary situation at this point in time, the way things are unfolding and the kinds of protests that are happening and the kind of language being used. So we're going to see more of this happening instead of less. Uh, Vandana, you know, there is some disagreement in the federal Liberal caucus. Certainly the 23 MPs, uh, there may be more than that who want to cease fire. That is not government policy. And certainly some of the, the Jewish members of, of, of the Liberal caucus in particular 
have spoken out against it, but no one's being censured and silenced for this disagreement. What, what did you make of what the Ford Conservatives did in Queen's Park today? Well, I think the difference is how the MPs that wrote that letter did. They did it across party lines. They did it in a respectful manner. They didn't openly challenge the leader of their parties. Um, they also mentioned uh, the importance of the release of hostages. Mm -hmm. They acknowledged the terrorist attack in Hamas. So they hit the right notes while asking for, you know, they want peace. They want a ceasefire. They want to get humanitarian aid in. So I think the note, the, the tone hits properly in a way that Ms. Jamas may have not. Um, I think the difference, too, is, is that, you know, no one would be surprised by this. Um, these are members, the ones that I've worked with, have long been vocal on human rights issues, but they know that politics is a team sport and there's a way to maneuver it. And there's a difference between having to be an activist and being in politics, and part of that is understanding how you work with your team. Rob, what's your take on today? Um, well, I, I went to uh, Ms. Jama's Twitter feed today because still at the top of her Twitter feed is a pin statement, uh, yep. which looks like one-way con condemnation to me. It, it, I didn't see her condemn Hamas, uh, the violence of Hamas, in that statement, I didn't see her call for a release of the hostages. I did see her accuse Israel uh, and, and blame Israel of a whole bunch of things. I think later on in her Twitter feed, she did say that uh, she, she abhors the violence. But it looked like a, a, a kind of a one-way uh, condemnation. Uh, you know, for, for her and for others who are calling for a ceasefire, I, I say to them, ceasefire usually requires negotiation. Who, uh, who are the Israelis going to negotiate with? Are they going to go negotiate with Hamas, which is calling for the destruction of Israel? What is a negotiation going to look like? How does that work? Um, so it's a difficult, difficult thing. I, I will say that the liberals, yes, they are divided, but you're about to have an MP on here, Ben Carr, who was at a very important meeting, I thought, last week yeah. of liberal MPs, uh, uh, who, who, Muslims, Jews, Arabs, all together, uh, differing opinions. Uh, and, and it seemed like that there were some difficult but heartfelt conversations. At least those people are talking to each other and trying to arrive at some sort of way forward. And I didn't get that uh, impression from Ms. Jama. No, uh, uh, certainly not. But Brad, just, just a final point on this. Whatever the issue is, a government using its parliamentary majority to silence an opposition MPP, the precedent of that, uh, you know, it could be any issue. Uh, I just wonder what, what, what are your thoughts on, on that particular move that we saw at Queen's Park today, aside from the caucus issues, because that's, that's boilerplate political stuff of kicking people out who aren't, aren't playing by the rules. Right. Yeah, yeah I think that the, that the PC government went too far uh, in, its, in its motion today. Uh, only they voted for it. Um, and I think, it, I think it does set a dangerous precedent. That is, you know, if, if there's something, and, and yes, her statement, that original statement, caused a lot of harm. Yeah. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, and so you can voice your opposition to the tone and the content of that statement, uh, and they should have. But then to strip her of her ability to be recognized or to be called upon in the House, uh, I think, uh, goes too far. The, you know, <laughs> it's funny because you know, the, the, the PCs, now this is, so we, we've dealt, I think we've, we've touched on you know, the issue as to whether or not uh, you know, she was a lone wolf acting, but you know, the, the same day that the RCMP were announcing that it was going to investigate the Ford government when it comes to the Green Belt, she decided to make that day the news cycle about herself and doubling down on that. Now what the Tories have is they, have, they, they, they can continue to distract away from their real crisis, which is on the Green Belt, and make it about MPP JAMA. That's just right. another indication as to she is taking away 
the work that the opposition is trying to do by holding this government to account on something like the green belt, and she's making it all about herself uh, and her her uh, and her take on the Middle East, which is I think is a shame. Okay, so Lisa, I want to get back to some of the, the images we showed off the top of the protests and sort of the social cleavages that 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 are on, on full display across the country uh, right now. Uh, there was a protest right outside this building. The Israeli embassy is near here. I, I, I get protesting against the Israeli embassy if you want a better life for Palestinians and a Palestinian state. We're now seeing protests at community centers, Jewish community centers, where there's kids going to preschool and day school there. There was a Jewish-owned cafe targeted in, in Toronto this weekend. Uh, what do you make of, of what we're seeing in the way these protests have evolved? So it's a little personal for me, David, because my husband, Bruce, is in a long-term care home, and it's the Apotex Care Home on the Baycrest campus, otherwise known as the Jewish Home for the Aged. And we've increased security there, and we have police officers there, and you have to sign in and sign out. So when I see these kinds of protests happening in other places, I naturally fear for the safety of the people going in and out of that facility and of the of the residents therewith. And these, these are... These are really, um, I'm not going to say violent, but they are very pressure-filled situations where it can go poorly very quickly, uh, and, I, and I am concerned about it. And I don't even know who's supposed to stand up and say this has to stop. Um, perhaps that's what the legislature did today. Perhaps what they said was we're not going to condone this kind of action. I, you know, blocking of the Gardner Expressway, blocking of Young and Bloor this morning, this is this is significant in terms of the kind of force and the kind of of um, uh, disruption that's being that's being shown. And as I said, I don't know how it all stops. Yeah, Vandana, the, the rage is is clear, right? You can see it if you spend any time on social media. You can see a lot of things, um, and there are a lot of images coming out of Gaza that are fueling uh, a lot of the rage. I mean, how should the politicians respond to this at the municipal, federal, provincial level to try to calm some things down? I think you have to first recognize the trauma these communities are going through. Um, intergenerational trauma for anyone who survived the Holocaust or his um, son or grandson of Holocaust survivor, but also, you know, people of color, uh, members of the Arab, Muslim, you know, Jewish communities. Like, there's a lot of trauma here. And across the board, you're seeing fear and anxiety, worry about the eradication of their people, worry about increased hate and discrimination, and also just a feeling of helplessness. Um, you know, um, I've mentioned before that I'm Tamil, and I remember that protest in, on the Gardner. But sometimes when people just feel helpless, they say, I need to make it, I need to do something. And this is what they feel like they can do. Um, it's not right to do anything that condones anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, or anything that, you know, threatens Israel's right to exist. But if people can peacefully protest and share what they need to share on, you know, educating people on what's happening in Palestine, you know, talking about, you know, we need aid, talking about a ceasefire, talking about peace. Um, the difference between now and 9-11, and this keeps coming up for me with, through stakeholders, is that I was in high school. There was no Facebook. There's no yeah. Instagram. There's no Twitter. Now all you do is doom scroll, and you see it again and again. So taking a huge mental toll. So sometimes with these gatherings, what you're seeing is people's emotions just getting out of control. What politicians need to do is recognize that. We need more mental health supports, and we need to call for calm. We need to see more of what Rob mentioned about Jewish and Arab and Muslim uh, MPs coming together and talking about dialogue. You know, uh, the mayor of Ottawa got together with a variety of faith leaders. So more of that to show that we need to have these open conversations and be respectful, I think will be needed. Right. So, Rob, on that, though, um, 
you know, we're on the cusp of a ground invasion, and a lot of images are going to come out, and for every fire out there, there will be ample fuel. You mentioned Bankar. He's going to come in to talk to us about this, a Jewish MP. We tried to get some of the other signatories of that letter, non-Jewish. They don't want to come on. They don't want to talk about it. So you have Jews and non-Jews all feeling very targeted in this. And it's likely to escalate as the conflict escalates. So how do leaders respond to this to help a country deal with this well you you can see the constant calibration uh, and and i and i think i think some errors uh, in in what the prime minister and some of his ministers uh, some of the conclusions they seem to be coming to early last week after the the uh, explosion at the hospital you can see that when the, the prime minister is fond of saying diversity is our strength but in this case it's really Diversity is leading to some division, uh, and uh, and I think that that might explain why there might be some hesitancy as well in some of those ministers, Champagne, uh, Jolie, and the Prime Minister himself, and in, in taking back, walking back some of the things they said after that explosion. So you know what I'm going to be looking for though in the next little while, David. Five of the seven G7 uh, leaders have now gone to Israel. Uh, Japan hasn't gone, probably won't go. They have had an independent policy when it comes to Israel uh, in, in trying to foster the Palestinian state. Is the prime minister going to go to Israel? Will he be, uh, will he ask to go? And uh, if he's asked, will he, uh, will he uh, be welcome there? That's an interesting question. Melanie Jolie has been there. She's in the region again, but... Um we have not seen the Prime Minister obviously go there and have no idea if, if he is planning to go there and wouldn't know <laughs> for security reasons until it was obvious. Um, all right, gang, there's lots more to talk about, but unfortunately, there's no more time. I, I'm going to thank you for joining me. Thank you to the Power Panel, Rob Russo, Vandana Cotter, Lisa Raitt, and Brad Levine. Thanks so much. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.